ICG Media presents High Tech Sunday. On today's episode of High Tech Sunday, our hosts, Dr. Mark Vaughn and Lango Dean, sit down with President for the Armed Forces Benefit Association and Five Star Life Insurance, retired General Larry Spencer, to discuss his book, Dark Horse. Up first is Corning Incorporated's Manager of Technical Talent Pipelining, Dr. Mark Vaughn. Next is Career Communication Group's Senior Technology Editor, Lango Dean. Finally, our esteemed guest, retired General Larry Spencer. General Spencer spent over 40 years in the Air Force, with his last assignment being the Vice Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force. In this capacity, General Spencer was the second highest ranking military member in the Air Force. He presided over the Air Staff and assisted the Chief of Staff of the Air Force with organizing, training, and equipping 690,000 active duty, guard, reserve, and civilian forces serving in the United States and overseas. General Spencer has two named awards, the Air Force General Larry Spencer Innovation Award and the Air Force General Larry Spencer Special Acts and Services Award. And without further delay, High Tech Sunday, featuring Dr. Mark Vaughn and Lango Dean. Well, thank you so much, Brandon. And as always, welcome to another episode of High Tech Sunday. Such a great pleasure and really a privilege to have you carve out some time with us so that we can have a conversation with uh, many who are mavericks, trailblazers, and just inspirational folks in the space of technology, as well as religion uh, and uh, philosophy. And that is certainly the case today as we welcome General Larry Spencer to the broadcast. Good afternoon, General. How are you? Good afternoon, Dr. Vaughn, and thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the uh, conversation. Absolutely. That introduction that we just heard has me chomping at the bit to get on with the conversation, and especially as we're thinking about the dark horse. So chomping at the bit, no pun intended, but maybe a little bit of one. Uh, But we're going to take some time to get to know you just a little bit before we dig into all of the richness of the conversation. So if we had the opportunity for an elevator conversation, What is it that you would share with us in response to the question, who is General Larry Spencer? Well, uh, I was uh, born and raised in uh, Southeast DC. My parents both came from, uh, or were raised in the South and Southern Virginia uh, during the Jim Crow era. Separate but equal uh, was the law of the land. So that shaped their uh, life lens. Uh, There was, uh, six of us kids. Uh, we grew up in a, on a neighborhood, uh, actually 46th place in Southeast, on a street called the Horseshoe because it was actually shaped like a horseshoe. As you can imagine, a uh, tough neighborhood back then, but a lot of love, a lot of uh, fun, uh, you know, with friends on the street. But, it, you know, thinking back on it, there was a lot of things that shaped me, uh, you know, growing up in the uh, 50s and 60s, uh, through the civil rights movement, through the uh, anti-Vietnam protests, all of those things that were going on uh, around me at the time. You know, last thing on my mind was joining the military, so that 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 came a little bit later. But 
poor student in school. Uh, the school system wasn't uh, one of the highest rated to begin with. Uh, and on top of that, I was not a good student. So uh, I was focused on sports. And uh, like a lot of my friends, you know, our goal was to either be in the NFL or the NBA or something like that. And so I was uh, grew up a football player and, and that was my goal to to play in the NFL. So, you know, other than that sort of upbringing as a, as a kid, you know, um, grew up in a Christian home. Uh, so I had that influence as well. Uh, and one of the things I, I think we'll get into at some point was I got to spend the summers with my grandfather in Southern Virginia. He had a tobacco farm. So every summer I left the city, I left what I was used to, all my friends, and went down to spend the summers with my grandfather on his farm, essentially isolated there. Uh, and that had a, a, a huge in, uh, influence and impact on my life going forward as well. Wow, that's a great tee up. And I and as you said, we're, we're going to dig in a little bit deeper. But you said something that was really uh, interesting. You said that a career in the military was not like your first choice, your first love, so to speak. And so tell us a little bit more about your professional background and and why did you actually wind up choosing to pursue the path that you did? Yeah, it's, it's inexplicable even today. Again, keep in mind that uh, during all the anti-Vietnam protests, the military uh, in the early 70s was not a popular thing to do. And in fact, the military members were shunned. As you know, folks would return from Vietnam. They weren't treated very well. Even military members assigned to the Pentagon, as an example, uh, wore civilian clothes because they didn't want to deal with the hassle and, the, and the, uh, uh, all of the negative things they would they'd get thrown at them. So I was, although my father was, a, was career army, so he was a career army soldier. I respected what he did in the service, but my influences uh, were just the opposite. Um, so I had not planned to join the military at all. So I graduated high school, uh, had a ton of football scholarship offers. Uh, the problem was I was the oldest of six. Uh, my father hadn't gone to college, and my, my mother had not even completed high school. She completed 10th grade. And so I had no mentors. I had no, no help. And, and I, was, I was a little bit lost, to be honest with you. I didn't know quite what to do. I had coaches call in my house. I remember in particular the coach from Howard was pretty persistent. So I was, I was uh, pretty confused at the time. And so I found myself the summer following high school living in my parents' basement, and I went and got a job, a civil service job in the Census Bureau uh, over in Suitland, Maryland, as a GS-1, and I was working there. Uh, at the time, D.C. also had a semi-pro football league, and I was playing semi-pro football in that league. And one day, out of the blue, uh, I left the Census Bureau and walked right down the street to a mall. It's called Iverson Mall, uh, for those of you that are familiar with the area, uh, off of Brand on Branch Avenue. And just to give you a sense for the times, the 70s, you know, this is going to be hard for you to believe, so I'm going to ask you to use your imagination. Uh, but I had an afro like you wouldn't believe. And so I'm, I'm walking through the mall, and I bought a purple jumpsuit uh, and matching purple high-platform shoes. And so I, <laughs> I had that in my bag, and I was walking through the mall, and I saw an Air Force recruiter's office, and it wasn't the recruiting part of it that drew me to them. 
it was the pictures of airplanes, which I was just sort of fascinated by. And so I stopped with my bag uh, and I was looking at the pictures and uh, a sergeant came out, Air Force sergeant came out. I remember his name, Sergeant Case. And he, he looked at me and he said, hey, do you play football? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, why don't you come in for a minute? So I, I just stepped in again, not planning to join the Air Force. Uh, and he gave me a story that in hindsight, I, I suppose was possible, certainly was not practical. Uh, because what he told me was, he said, look, if you enlist now in the Air Force, you can go to basic training, graduate basic training, apply for the Air Force Academy, get accepted in the Air Force Academy, and then go there and play football. And I said, hey, that sounds like a good deal to me. Are you sure? And he gave me example. The example he gave me was Roger Staubach, who had gone to the Naval Academy and was playing for the Dallas Cowboys. And so I said, wow, that, that sounds great because that's, that was my goal all along to play in the NFL. Now, there's a lot he didn't tell me, you know, based on my, my poor academic record, which, and I had an SAT score to match, uh, there's no way I could have gotten in the Air Force Academy anyway. Uh, and that process was a lot more difficult and complicated than he led me to believe. That said, though, I, I sort of stumbled in his office and about 45 minutes later, I stumbled out of there and I was in the Air Force. I, I hadn't I hadn't told my parents. I hadn't told my friends. It, it was just that uh, surprising. And again, it was, I, it was almost fate uh, in hindsight. Uh, because, you know, when I woke up that morning, the last thing on my mind was joining the military. And by the time I got home from work that, that evening, I was in the Air Force. Wow. That is a, a, a really great testimony. I got to tell you, um, you probably have given us, or at least me, one of the most indelible visuals uh, ever on High Tech Sunday. I'm picturing the afro and the purple jumpsuit and the suit and the purple platforms. And still, well, I guess you weren't wearing that when you went to the military office, but but uh, that would have certainly been something to see. Uh, we won't, we don't know if you have any pictures, uh, but uh, uh, that really is a, a cool story. And I, I want to kind of actually uh, learn more, though, about what you were saying about the reputation, if you will, of the military at that time. But before I do that, you mentioned something else earlier. You said you were raised in a Christian home. So can you speak to us just a, a bit about how your spirituality actually has been of influence to your life's work? And, 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 and what is it that you are seeing as your mission for life and, and the passion around it uh, that motivates you even today? Yeah, they, you know, I will say up front to anyone who asks, you know, the most important thing in my life is my faith. And uh, I, so I grew up in a Christian home. My grandfather, as I mentioned, I spent the summers with him. He was a deacon in the church. And so <laughs> we didn't, we didn't, we, we rarely left the farm, but on Sunday we left the farm and we went to church uh, and whether we wanted to or not. And uh, so I certainly had his influence and his uh, his counseling and, and his uh, teaching, because because he taught Sunday school, uh, but it 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 is is clearly been the most. It has been my foundation and my rock, not only throughout my military career, but throughout my life, and, and it continues to be today. Uh, a quick story, um, because I talk about this in the book. When I was, you know, I, I had been raised in the church, and uh, we were Baptists. Just I mean, not 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 that that matters that much denominational wise, but we came up in a Baptist church. 
And so I was down on my on the farm, and uh, I'm sure you're aware of this, but particularly out in one of the old country churches, you know, they had revival every year, every summer. And so I was at revival. It was a week-long uh, revival. And here I am, a young, I'm guessing uh, old 10, 12 years old, sitting up in the balcony. And if you can picture this, an old country church, no air conditioning, no, no paid parking, and <laughs> on a warm summer night, everybody's waving the fans with a picture of Dr. Martin Luther King on one side and a funeral home advertisement on the other. So everybody's, everybody's right. waving those fans. And I was sitting there listening to the preacher, and it was as though he was preaching to me. I mean, it, it was such a strong connection. Again, I already believed in God. I believed as a Christian in Jesus. I believed it, but it, it never had connected with me that way before. And so at the end of the sermon, you know, they in a, in a Christian church and a Baptist church in particular, they asked, does anyone want to come down and, and confess uh, and, you know, give their life to Christ and be baptized? And I, I didn't do it because I don't know why. I did, just didn't want to go down in front of a crowd like that. And so I remember riding home that evening and I felt bad because I, the, the, the pull on me was like it had never been before. And so fortunately for me, several weeks later, there was another church. Actually, I had a cousin that lived in the area. We went to his church. They were having revival. And I, that same pool came to me again. But this time, I, I, I did take the walk down the aisle uh, to give my life to Christ and to get baptized. And I remember getting baptized like it was yesterday. This church was even more of a country church than the one I'd gone to with my grandfather. So much so, the baptismal pool was outside. And it was wow. literally, it, it was like a, a uh, cinder block bathtub. It was literally a rectangular cinder block. And it literally, and I'm not exaggerating, I've actually got pictures of it, a hand pump, a water pump <laughs> outside the, the, uh, the bathtub, if you will. And you literally fill it full of water by pumping it out of the, from the old pump. So this was out in the middle of nowhere. And I remember the congregation gathering around. They were singing hymns. And I stepped into the pool just really, really nervous. Uh, and I remember the pastor saying, you know, I baptize you in the name of the Father, uh, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I went down underwater, came back up. And uh, it's just one of those things I'll never forget. I had a sense of calm uh, when I came up out of that water that is almost hard to explain. And so, again, obviously, being a Christian, getting baptized doesn't make you perfect. And so I still have always, and to this day, have my faults. You know, I, I try as best I can to live in Christian life. but. You know, I, I felt, though, from that point forward, a sense of commitment that I was going to really try my best to live a Christian life and learn and study and, and try to follow the teachings of, of Jesus from that point forward. Uh, General, I, I just so appreciate that testimony. Thank you for sharing that. And and it, it the personal experience that you had is is really something that clearly um, has shaped the the life path and the choices uh, that you've made in your storied career and of course that story is continuing to be written so so let's talk about the dark horse you already said a little bit about 
when you got into the military, it was during a time that uh, it wasn't very popular to do so. And you were drawn to uh, the pictures of those planes in that office at the mall. And you've gone on to have what is inarguably a legendary career in the Air Force, ascending to the rank of a four-star general, which is absolutely amazing. So can you talk to us a little bit about what is it like to be the leader of so many people? We heard in the intro that at one point you had responsibility and oversight for nearly 700,000 folks. What's that like? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's an honor, uh, frankly. Uh, it's it's humbling, but it, it is the military and the Air Force. I think does a good job of of preparing you for those positions, and so you know they give you uh, increasingly more responsibility to see how you perform, uh, and if you perform well, then they give you a little more responsibility. So, putting on my fourth star was uh, it, it's something I I still pinch myself. To this day about and I'm, I'm retired <laughs> but, but uh, so it, it, you know when I think back on you know growing up in southeast a poor student barely graduated from high school starting off in the Air Force as an E1 uh, to go from E1 to O10 which is as low as you can start and as high as you can rise uh, I can't explain it but uh, being a four-star general it's entree into a a special club uh, that is, again, hard for most folks outside the military to comprehend. Uh, it, it, is, it is such a rare accomplishment for African-Americans in particular in the Air Force. Uh, there's only been nine African-American four-stars since 1947. When I joined the military, when I joined the Air Force, no one of color had, been, had, had reached the rank of four-star in any service. Um, and so that, that is a, an unusual, unusual occurrence. And, and I'm, I've been thankful and humble uh, to have been in that position ever since. One of the things uh, that will give you an idea of how I felt as a four-star was the second day after I pinned on, the second day uh, as a brand new four-star, I drove into the Pentagon and the Pentagon has many entrances to it. One of those entrances is called the river entrance, which is the one that I typically would, would, would walk in. Very majestic. The steps walk up to the Pentagon. The background is the Potomac River. When you see folks uh, on TV, you know, shots of them going into the Pentagon, it's generally the river entrance. Uh, and so, and I had been in the Pentagon at that point for quite some time. Uh, and, and every day I went in, you know, I noticed in the parking lot, there were a series of, oh, 10 or 12 uh, black sedans that were driven by mostly African-American drivers, many of which had some military background. And their job was to drive, you know, DVs around town all day. If folks had to go over the Hill or over the White House or the State Department. Their job, you know, Secretary of Defense, you know, Secretaries of the Services, they would take them around town. Uh, and I would always wave to them and, you know, say, how you doing if I saw one. But I never met any of them. They, they were all great guys to, to me, all, you know, but I never really had a conversation with them. And so the, the second day as a four-star, I got out of my car as I normally do. I was walk, about to go up the steps. And all 12 of those men got out of their car 
and they came up to me. And of course, I was, I was shocked. And, and I said, you know, good morning. How are you guys doing? And they said to me, we just want to tell you how proud we are of you. They said, we, we have been in these vehicles and we've watched you walk up those stairs as a two-star and as a three-star. And we were so proud of you. And, but we didn't, we didn't want to come out and bother you because we didn't know, you know, we didn't really know you. But they said, but as a four-star, we could not sit in the, in, the, in the vehicles any longer. We had to come out and talk to you. And I got to tell you, uh, Dr. Vaughn, I almost lost it. I mean, the, the fact that particularly when you think of, and they reminded me a little bit of my father because he was also in the Army. And when you think about their service, you know, my father was in the Army when it was still segregated. Uh, and, you know, he was in segregated uh, facilities, places were off limits to him, to them. My parents, you know, when they want to, you know, try to, to, to find some place to live, there are only certain places. I mean, all of that. And these gentlemen had gone through all of that in their career. And so it was rare for them to see an African-American officer, much less an African-American general officer or four star. Uh, and so I almost lost it because I, I knew what that it, it wasn't me. It's what it meant to them. And it was just an incredible experience. And so to me. It wasn't about anything I accomplished. You know, to, to me, being a four-star, it was like being a colonel or like being a staff sergeant. I mean, it was, it was a job for me. Uh, it was another level of responsibility. So I, never I guess it never really hit me like that. It was just more work I had to do and more responsibility. <laughs> uh, but, but what it meant to others is what is, was most impactful to me. And the, and the fact that there were folks out there who were looking at me as a source of pride was really, really humbling for me. I, I can, I can get the uh, the visual again. You're a great storyteller because as you were uh, setting up that that image of those twelve guys coming out to celebrate you, uh, you, you got me over here kind of being misty. <laughs> uh, and and so I think that it's got to be at least in part due to the fact that it's it's not just the 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 four star which is major by itself. But as a black man in this country, in the military, that has got to absolutely uh, make things even more significant. And like you said, maybe not to you, but to the people who have now had the opportunity to see where they might be able to themselves ascend, it's got to be incredible. But on the flip side, let me ask you this. Have you ever experienced conflict that was actually initiated because of the color of your skin? And how did you deal with it? Sure. I'm often asked, uh, did I experience any uh, any racism or discrimination in the, in the military? And, and my answer is twofold. One, to be clear, every supervisor or commander I had treated me with the utmost respect and were very helpful and in fact bent over backwards to try to support me. So that's the good news. Uh, but did I experience episodes of racism, of unconscious bias, my wife and I both? Absolutely. Um, so let me give you an example that happened right as I was about to retire. So I was a four-star uh, and I was living over at the joint uh, base uh, at uh, Andrews, Anac I'm sorry, Bol Anacostia Bowling. And it, it was, uh, I had a really long day ahead. And so 
I decided to, to get up early uh, and try to hit the gym uh, before I went to work. And so if you can picture this, it's 5.30 in the morning. I pull into the parking lot of the gym. Uh, I'm in my gym clothes, athletic clothes, and I have my uniform in a bag hanging up in the back of the car. There's only two general officer parking spaces at, at the gym, so I pull into one of those. And I had barely noticed a gentleman sitting in his car in the row behind me, just sitting there. I didn't know why he was there. So I opened the door. I got out, the out of the car. I opened the back door to, to get my uniform out, which was in a bag. And this gentleman came up to me, and he chewed me up one side and down the other and said, how dare I park in a general officer spot? And he, I mean, it, he, he was obnoxious about it. And out of the corner of my eye, there was a chief master sergeant that I knew. Uh, that's the highest listed grade in the, in the Air Force. He was livid. He was, because he knew me. He was about to come over and sort of tell this guy, you know, where to get off. And I put my hand up this because I had experienced this before many times in my career, uh, including not getting saluted at the front gate. Uh, and so I let him go on for a, a minute or so, and I looked, at him, looked him in the eye and I said to him, what makes you think I'm not a general officer? And it was as though a light bulb in his head came on because he realized that he just took for granted that because I was African-American, I could not possibly be a general officer. And what I told him was, look, if you had just looked at my windshield on the car, you would have seen four stars on it, and you could have saved us both a lot of time and trouble. But he, he just, he didn't even bother to check. Think about that unconscious bias that he had, uh, that he just assumed. And by the way, this was a period in our history that we had an African-American president of the United States. And let, me, and, and let me give you the kicker to this, because this is a true story. This gentleman that chewed me out was African-American. Oh, my goodness. So here is a, a black, I'm assuming he was in the Air Force. I don't have any idea what his grade was or his rank. He could not see someone who looked like him as a general officer, much less a four-star. And he was, wow. obviously, he was overwhelmingly apologetic. But as I told him, hey, that's not the point. I said, you know, you need to think about this and what you just did uh, and what caused you to react the way you did. And so those type of ep episodes for me happened all during my career. They, they continue to happen. I can't tell you the number of times my wife and I were in a social function uh, with other senior officer spouses and someone walked up to my wife and asked her to go get them a drink or, or mm -hmm. to go, go get them a plate of something because they assumed she was there working the party and not a part of the, not one of the guests. Those type of things happen all the time. They happen to me all the time. And, and so, so did someone, did I have a supervisor or commander discriminate against me directly? No. But those things that I, uh, those uh, examples I, or that example I gave you, uh, happened over and over to me uh, throughout my career. That is incredible, and and I think that there is both the 
the challenge uh, from that reality, but also the lesson for you to talk to us about how it is that you actually turned that around and it was a teachable moment uh, is, is really, I think, a lesson that we uh, can all take away because the, the knee-jerk reaction uh, would, would not necessarily be that. Uh, but to build it into a teachable moment, I think, is uh, a testament, uh, again, to uh, just your makeup. Uh, so I think that that, that particular account is uh, a fitting segue uh, for us to talk about your upcoming book. We know that it's titled Dark Horse. So tell us about it. What can people expect uh, as they read this book? And why'd you name it Dark Horse uh, to begin with? Yeah, so a dark horse is actually someone uh, who isn't expected to do well, uh, isn't expected to, to succeed. And just based on where I was born and raised in, in an inner city, there were no expectations for me. Uh, and there were no expectations for all of my friends uh, around me. Uh, and and that's, that was tough uh, because I, I had to, to deal with, you know, why are people in my neighborhood not, you know, not doing well? Why aren't there examples here? You know, why are the folks that I see that are successful, why don't they look like me? You know, when when I in Southeast, my friends were black, my church congregation was black, my school was black. But when I went outside my neighborhood to a doctor, the doctor was white. When I went, my father went to buy a car, the car salesman or, or saleswoman was white. You know, when when we went outside the neighborhood and, and, and watched movies and TV about successful people, they did not look like me. And, and that was that really played havoc on my self-esteem and my self-worth because I didn't understand, you know, why that was. Now, obviously, I saw successful black entertainers, uh, you know, successful African-Americans and people of color in sports. But outside of that, they just weren't there. <laughs> you know, I was I mentioned this yesterday. You know, one of my heroes growing up, you know, was uh, was Superfly. You know, when I saw the super movie Superfly or or Shaft, you know, but but when you think about who they were portrayed in the movie as, you know, pimps or, you know, drug dealers, you know, they, they were our heroes, but think about the image that that portrayed for us once we inter internalize it. And by the way, think of the image that portrayed for African-Americans to white America as well. That sort of stereotyping, that sort of unconscious bias, those things are pretty serious. Uh, and it's something that we all have to, to fight against and try to overcome. But so that, you know, for me, you know, once I work through that, uh, it's been all about persistence uh, and never giving up and realizing you're going to get knocked down, but realizing you have to keep getting up. And that, to me, is what Dark Horse is ultimately about, that it doesn't matter where you start, uh, it, it's where you finish that counts. And understanding that we all, you know, some of us are born with a silver spoon and many of us are not, that doesn't matter. Now, uh, the folks who start off uh, in a more difficult environment have a tougher road, absolutely. But I believe that if you're willing to put in the work and, you, and you're persistent and you get up when you're knocked down, and for me personally, as I mentioned, my faith was part of that as well. But I believe if you put all those things together, uh, you can be successful. And the only person that can stop you from being successful is you. And once I realized that, 
that's when things took off for me. And that's what I hope people get out of this book, Dark Horse. Thank you so much for, for uh, breaking that down for us. And I think that it, again, is really impactful to think about the headline that you just shared with us. It's not where you start, but where you finish. And I think you would agree how you get there as well. Uh, this is one of those episodes, General, where uh, I, I feel like uh, I, I need uh, another hour just to settle in. There's so much that um, that you're teeing up that I'd like to delve into. Uh, but I'm going to hand things off in just a moment. But I have time, I think, for uh, one more question. And, I, and, and this is one that's kind of 101 for you, I'm sure. Uh, when you were talking about your experience of going into the Pentagon all those years uh, through the river entrance, you said the guys saw you as a two-star, they saw you as a three-star, uh, they saw you as a four-star. You mentioned those stars like they're just kind of, you know, it's just, it happens. Uh, but can you give us a idea of really, no kidding, uh, what does it mean to be a general? How, how do you become a general? What's the process like? Yeah, it's uh, so there is no uh, checklist uh, or, you know, there is no plan you can follow that will, you know, that will make you a general. It, it, it really is uh, one step at a time. And one of my early mentors as a second lieutenant gave me probably the best advice I, I ever received. And that advice was to bloom where you plant it. And mm. for me, it was all about doing the absolute best I could at the job I was in, not worrying about what was next, not worrying about what, you know, a lot, I know I've run into people that, you know, have actually written out a, a plan. You know, I'm going to get this training and I'm going to get this job. And then the next I'm going to get that job and that's going to lead to that job. Uh, I never did any of that. I, I just tried to do the absolute best I could at every job I was in. And fortunately, it, it led to something else. In my case, particularly once I reached the rank of colonel, I was prepared to retire. So I, my guess was, okay, I'll complete this job and I'll retire and, and go find something else to do. But I, I approached those jobs the same way I did as, I, as a second lieutenant. I'm going to be the best colonel they've ever seen, and I'm going to do this job better than anyone has ever done it. And those things, and I'm not saying I accomplished that, but that was my goal. But those things led, led to more opportunities. And before you know it, you know, you're, you're at the top. And for me, again, I was, I was just very blessed uh, to be there. I think it's it's really, again, uh, just so telling about how it is that your mindset was to whatever state I'm in, uh, whatever position I'm in, I'm going to be the best at that. I'm going to be the best, whatever you call it, that I can be. And that really does seem to be uh, uh, instructive, regardless of the sector uh, that you find yourself in. Uh, so, so let me ask you this. I'll, I guess I'll tag on a, a quick question. 40 years um, in the Air Force, there have got to be uh, some takeaways. What, what values would you say you learned exclusively due to your time of service? Sure. There were so many, uh, you know, as an example, one of the I list in the, the in the last chapter in the book actually lists the life lessons that I learned over time. And, you know, the first one was, you know, even a dark horse can succeed. And so I wanted to be clear and I give examples of that. I wanted to be clear that no matter, again, how, how you start, if you if you're willing to work for it, you can you can achieve your whatever goal you want want to achieve. 
even something I've learned that was may sound uh, interesting coming from a military person, but I, I learned to be kind to people, to, to respect everyone, um, and to make sure that uh, I treated people the way I wanted to be treated. Uh, that, that was really important to me uh, as I progressed through my career. Um, I talk a lot about leadership because leadership is one of the things I feel like I, I excel at. And I talk about how important leadership is and that there is no military organization or civilian organization that can be successful without strong leaders. So I talk a lot about leadership uh, and how and give examples of leaders and how they've impacted their uh, their organization. So uh, there are so many lessons I learned. One of them I'll, I'll just mention briefly. You know, if you ask my wife about this, she would just tell you I'm really cheap, which is probably true. Uh, but, but early on, uh, when I was a kid, I didn't retain much in elementary school, but I, I did retain the story my teacher read. It was called The Ant and the Grasshopper. Uh, and it, it was, you probably familiar, it was one of Aesop's fables uh, that essentially talked about being thrifty and saving and, and earning money while you can. I don't know why, but that stuck with me my whole life. Uh, and so, I, you know, as a, as a young kid, I, you know, I cut grass, I watched cars, I delivered the Washington Post, even the Washington News back then, is, which is now defunct. I, I've been a worker my whole life, not only because I, want, I learned to save, but because of the example from my father and grandfather of the strong work ethic they had. But yeah, being thrifty, being, uh, being able to manage your resources, being able to, to make sure you understand, you know, again, as poor a student as I was, the theory of compound interest that that stuck with me so I, I knew and so you know my neighbor and I don't want to extend this too long but my I cut grass for my neighbor and he would pay me two dollars and, and think about this this guy had a huge yard and you know one of the best inventions that has, has ever been invented was the weed eater because back then uh, I had a handheld clipper that I was on my hands and knees and I would go around mm -hmm. his fence and, and trim the his yard on my hands and knees. I did all of that for two dollars, and wow. I and my father opened up an account, and, and my bank book was full of two dollar uh, deposits at a time. Uh, but over time, I would watch that two th those two dollars add up, and I would watch them put interest on top of it. And I said, "Man, this is this is the this is what I've been waiting to learn right here." And so, so I, a lot of lessons like that I learned. Um, that I that I do outline in the book that I'm that I hope will be helpful to others. That's great, General Spencer, and and I'm telling you, it, you're inspiring me, and I know that you're doing the same for everyone listening and thinking about inspiration. Uh, we've got a, an inspirational co-host, and that's Lango Dean. I'm going to turn things over to her. How you doing, Lango? Very well, Dr. Vaughn. Thank you for the compliment. You're listening to High Tech Sunday. Featuring Dr. Mark Vaughn, Lango Dean, and our special guest, President for the Armed Forces Benefit Association and Five Star Life Insurance, Retired General Larry Spencer. Registration for the 2021 Women of Color STEM Conference is now open. Stay tuned for a message from our sponsor. The Women of Color STEM Conference, DTX. This year, we are boldly pursuing our future as never before. As women, as leaders, as champions, we were set to rise. It's a new day. 
Don't miss this epic platform for women and our digital twin experience, giving you all that you expect from this powerful conference and more. We acknowledge your passion, your drive, your leadership, and your unwavering commitment to making this world a better place for women in STEM fields. The Women of Color STEM Conference DTX, October 7th through the 9th, 2021. Register today at www.womenofcolor.net. Again, registration for the 2021 Women of Color STEM Conference is now open. So visit www.womenofcolor.net for more information. Now, back to the show. Welcome, General Spencer. It's a pleasure to have you here today. You know, like Dr. Vaughn said, uh, when you were talking to him, those lessons that inspired you are inspiring us, and I'm sure they're going to be inspiring lots of people. You cut grass, you delivered newspapers, you learned to save, you, you, you learned to be thrifty right from an early age. But as we know, um, you were born in D.C., and I had the privilege of living in D.C. for many, many years. More than 90% of people living east of, of the Anacostia are black. The poverty rate in the Southeast is three times higher than the rest of DC. There are serious economic challenges, uh, which have implications for people's ability to succeed in the future. So what are you telling kids in schools, in the East, in the Southeast? What are you telling those kids about succeeding and about their future? Yes, that, that's a great question and a great point, you know, because when you look at around it, a lot of the inner cities, not just D.C., uh, cities like Chicago and others, I mean, you, you just you just feel for what's happening there. And, and you know, we're all scratching our heads trying to figure out how to improve uh, the inner cities. But, you know, I, I've spoken at most of the uh, junior high and high schools in the D.C. area. And, and, and I got to be honest, I mean, I love doing it. I love interacting with the young students. Uh, but it, it is a little bit depressing uh, sometimes because, first of all, it takes 30 minutes to get through all the metal detectors to get in the school. But then once you get in, one of the things that, I, I, that surprises me most is not much has changed since I was in high school in the sense that uh, most of the young black males in particular, when I ask them what do they want to do with their life, 90% of them tell me the same thing. They either want to be the next LeBron James or they want to be the next Jay-Z. Uh, and, and I get it. And I, and, I, and I tell them all, I hope that works out for you. Uh, but I show them the numbers that essentially say it's almost impossible if, for a high school student to make it all the way to the NBA. And it's almost impossible for young uh, aspiring rap artists to be, you know, Kanye West. Now, again, it can happen. And, and I don't discourage them from pursuing those, those goals. But I, I, my message to them is you need a plan B. And plan B starts with, you know, really focusing on your schoolwork and, you know, where you are today, you know, going back to that blooming where you planted. You, you're, in, you're in school and your job right now is to learn as much as you can uh, and, and, and try as best you can to find mentors, to, to, to talk to folks that have been through what you've been through and try to learn those lessons so you don't have to repeat them. 
And that's why I, I really think it's so important for all of us, me included, to get in those schools and to get into churches and to get into Boy Scout troops and Girl Scout troops and talk to people and let them see uh, people of color who have been successful and let them ask you a lot of questions. You know, one of the, one of the uh, interesting uh, visits I had, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, there's a program that the Washington Nationals have in D.C., they actually built a, a, a baseball field over in Southeast and they teach young kids how to play baseball. And they also have a classroom instruction as well, which is like an after school program, which is really great. Uh, and so I went over to speak and I was in uniform and I was telling them about, you know, not necessarily military career, but, you know, you need to be thinking about a career. Uh, and when I got done, there was a, a young lady, I'm guessing she's 10 years old. She raised her hand and I thought she was going to ask me about, you know, joining the Air Force. And she said, how much money do you make? And so, you know, she kind of she kind of cut right to the chase. Uh, but my point is, uh, when I was in school, uh, there were not many mentors that came to see and talk to us. Uh, and so I really didn't have a, a very good landscape of what I could do. You know, when I joined the Air Force and I went to basic training, it was the first time I'd flown on an airplane. It was the first time I'd been to an airport. Think about that. And so when I got in the Air Force, a lot, of, especially when I became an officer, a lot of my counterparts were pilots. And I would always ask them, you know, how did, why did you decide to be a pilot? And they would give me the same answer. When I was a kid, I went to an air show and I was, you know, my uncle's a pilot. They had all of these role models and all of these examples that I didn't have. Uh, and so there are so many professions out there that a lot of folks, a lot of the young folks would aspire to if we could give them access. You know, when I walk out of a school after speaking, the thing that strikes me the most and the thing that bothers me the most is I know that there's probably one of those students that has a cure for cancer. You know, there, there's a student in there that I just spoke to that could be president of the United States, but it won't happen because, you know, they, they won't get an opportunity to fulfill their full potential. And that is a shame. And so, and it's really sad. So I try to devote as much of my time as I can to at least, you know, what little bit I can do to try to get these young folks to, to at least think about what are the possibilities and let them know that they're as smart uh, as anyone else and they can go as far as anyone else. They just need to understand that and really believe it and embrace it. Hmm. Yeah, it's that believing, isn't it? You, you've got first. You've got to believe that you can start, like you told Dr. Vaughn earlier. You can start as low as 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 low as there is to start, and there is possibility for you to rise as high as you can rise. A lot of young men believe that the path, because you've got so many successful black entertainers and black athletes who are doing phenomenally well. They think, well, this is the path. And many of them are not going to college, two-year college or four-year college. And this is a study that recently came out. So how are you getting students to believe that the Air Force, for instance, is a pathway? Because there's so many jobs in the, in the Air Force. How are you getting students to believe that there's a pathway there for them? Yeah, I, I, encourage, I, I encourage young young men and women to consider the military, particularly if they don't have a plan after high school. 
you know, we're, we're all in, find ourselves in different spaces. I was not ready for college after high school. I'll just be honest about it. I just was not mature enough to go to college. So if I had gone, I don't think I would have been successful, at least initially. The light bulb for me came on a little later. Uh, so, But the military is a great organization to join because, as you mentioned, there's everything in the military from being a doctor, uh, engineer, pilot, finance, you know, logistics, you know, almost every conceivable career path you can think of is in the military. And on top of that, I mean, you get a chance to travel, you get a chance to meet a lot of different people, you get a chance to develop your leadership, you get, you know, you get a chance to be engaged in something that's bigger than, than you are. Uh, and so it, it is a great opportunity for those, again, particularly those who aren't exactly sure what they want to do, to go in and, and, and just see if they like it. If they don't, then after four years, you know, they've gained a great education, they've gained great training, they've, they've gained great experience that they can take with them. And, and besides that, they have the GI Bill if they decide to, to get out after four years and go to college. Uh, they may decide they like the military and they stay in. Uh, but I think it's an excellent way to start. And for me personally, it, it was in hindsight, it, it was the best thing for me, the best way, the best way to start. Thank you for sharing that. General, I know you do this all the time where you're going to schools, but you're also part of the, uh, the Bay of Stars and Stripes mentoring program the sustained mentoring program. So tell us a little bit about that and a student that you have met through that program that you have been inspired by and, and how so? I worked with the BEA program for several years and specifically uh, mentoring young high school students. Uh, and, and frankly, it is, a, it is motivational and inspirational for me. I, I get more out of that than I'm sure the students do because you're talking generally very bright students who are who are interested in STEM, you know, have good grades, good SAT scores. They're going to do well. Uh, I think it's a matter at, of that point of of continuing to encourage them, and and to show them examples of of, of uh, folks uh, who have been successful and allow them to ask questions and continue to interact. Uh, I can't tell you the number of folks that I'm involved with now and mentor as a mentor, whether it be young young folks in school, college students uh, to uh, you know, 40-year-olds, you know, that continue to call me and say, hey, I've, I've got this opportunity, what do you think? Or, you know, I, I had this problem at work, what do you think? And so that's so critical to me because having mentors was so important in my own career. And I understand how, in fact, I still have mentors today. And so it's one of my missions to try to give back, you know, at least as much as I received. And so that's something that, uh, that I try to do with uh, young students through the Bayer program. That's wonderful. This is my last question before I turn it back to Dr. Vaughn. And you were telling us a story earlier about a young black man who wasn't so reflective um, before he decided to sort of like accost you <laughs> is the word I, I think I'll go for here. And what I took from that, that there is a major lesson in, in thinking about what you're going to say before you say it or thinking about what you're going to do before you do it. But for you, what other major lesson would you share with us now before I throw things back to Dr. Barr? Sure. I, and I'll, I'll do this with a quick story. Um, I mentioned that I spent uh, time on uh, my grandfather's farm. And one of the reasons I would go down is because 
I had a cousin there uh, who was my same age. And so my, my grandparents were raising him. Uh, and so I, I was a good companion for him during the summers. And we, you know, uh, as we worked the farm. Well, one particular summer I went down and he was with his mother in Philadelphia. And so for the first two weeks of my stay, it was just my grandfather and I. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I would say uh, on the personality scale, I'm more of an introvert than extrovert, certainly. My grandfather was an introvert, so we didn't do a lot of talking. But this summer, for whatever reason, since it was just the two of us, uh, he began talking to me a little more and, uh, you know, I guess in his way, trying to, you know, help me to, to grow up. And uh, so he gave me all these pearls of wisdom, you know, many of which I, to this day, don't, don't understand and don't know why he called them pearls of wisdom. For example, I remember him, we were in a truck riding somewhere, and he, he thought I needed to know the difference between a donkey and a mule. Uh, okay, <laughs> I, know, I know the difference. I'm not sure why I need to know. Uh, he, also, he also told me that every rooster finds a kernel of corn every once in a while. Uh, I'm still scratching my head over <laughs> what, what that means. But <laughs> our normal routine was we would get up, we had chores, uh, you know, feeding the hogs, feeding the chickens, and all of that. And after breakfast, we would go get on the tractor, uh, he had a tractor, he had a platform on the back. I'd get on the back, we'd ride out to one of the many tobacco fields and work tobacco. Well, this day was different. And rather than go to the, go get on the tractor, he went over to get the horse out of the barn, So, which was new for me. So he got this big horse out, hooked it up to a platform, put a plow on it, and I, I sat down on the platform and the horse pulled all of us out to a field. And so we got to this field. He hitched this plow up to this horse. Again, I'm from... DC. This was, I'm fascinated by this. I'd never seen this before. So he, he hitched up this plow and he starts plowing rows up and down the, the, uh, the field, just beautiful rows. And uh, I was just, again, I was just uh, taken aback by, by how this was all working out. And so at one point he decided to take a, a bathroom break. Uh, so he disappears into the woods and I'm thinking, okay, I'm 10, 11, 12 years old. Uh, I'm going to impress my grandfather. I'm going to show him you know, that I, I'm a man. And although, you know, he, he looked at me as sort of a city kid, I'm going to show him. So I got up, uh, you know, had never done this before, just based on what I'd seen from him. And I don't know how much you know about a horse and a plow, but it, it is not for the faint of heart, number one, not, much less not for someone who's 10, 11 years old. So I barely get this plow upright. I get the reins behind me. I knew the command to tell the horse to go forward. So the horse starts to walk. The problem is there is an art to one, controlling the horse, and two, controlling the plow. I didn't know either of those. So this horse is cutting now diagonally across my grandfather's perfectly plowed rows. <laughs> now, let me pause just for a second because I want to be clear. I'm not advocating this today, but back in the 50s and 60s, you know, you could whip your kids and your grandkids. <laughs> and by the way, not only would the neighbors not know, but if they knew, they would encourage it. And so, so I'm thinking, oh my God, and he'd never whipped me before, but I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to get it because, you know, I'm, I'm really messing up his half a day's of work. And so I'm really scared. I'm going behind this horse. He's going across the roads. I don't know how to make the horse stop. And so my grandfather runs out of the woods and he yells out, Larry, what are you doing? And and so if you can picture this, I turn to try to see him at the same time keeping up with the horse. I stumble and almost fall. And as I catch myself, just instinctively, I say, whoa, you know, and, and 
by the way, when I said, whoa, the horse stopped. So I, if I'd have known that ahead of time, I would have known the command to make the horse stop. So now my grandfather's storming across the field. I'm looking around thinking, oh, my God, there's just he and I out here. Uh, and this is not going to go well. And so he came up to me. And the first thing he said was, are you OK? Which I didn't expect. But I said, hey, that's OK. This is not so bad. I said, you know, I, and I started apologizing. You know, we, we called him P.A. Uh, and I said, P.A., I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I didn't mean it. And, and, and so he said, hey, hey, stop a minute. He, and, and this this was inarticulate uh, what he said. But but the meaning of it was so impactful on my life. It, what he said to me was, it's OK to try and to try and fail, but it's not OK not to try. Uh, and by the way, in the book, one of my that's the title of one of my life lessons. It's it's OK to try and fail, but it's not OK not to try. And I didn't quite understand it at the time, but he, he was proud of me that I tried, even though I failed. And I learned from that lesson that, you know, you can't score a touchdown sitting on the bench. You got to get in the game. And so I was never, from that time forward, I pushed myself, even when it was uncomfortable, to get in the game. You know, I can't tell you the number of times I've been the only African-American in the room around, you know, the, the decision table with all of the, the uh, senior folks. And there's a hesitancy sometimes to speak up. But if I have an idea that I think is relevant, uh, you know, I, I learned from that lesson to speak up. If there was something new that uh, I, I ordinarily might not try, I would think back on what he said and said, you know, get in there and try. If you fail, it's OK. But if you if you don't try, you'll never know. And so that, to me, was one of those lessons that was probably most impactful throughout my life uh, that I really tried to impart to others to just make sure that you're going to fail. So, so just get over that. It, you know, don't not do something because you're afraid of failure. You're going to fail. I'm going to tell you that already. But you learn from failure uh, and you get stronger from failure. Now, hopefully you don't have the same failures over and over. But if you don't get out there in the game, you can't score a touchdown. So that, to me, is probably what, one of the most important lessons I've ha I had in my, in my entire life that I, that I still live by today. Thank you, General. I really do hope someone makes a movie out of your book because the stories <laughs> you've shared with us today are just so fascinating. I'm just sitting here dying with laughter just imagining you on that field. <laughs> well, may well maybe, after, maybe after this is over, you can give Spike Lee a call. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, General. Over to you, Dr. Vaughn. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow, thanks, thanks a, a, a lot, Lango. Um, I'm telling you, the, the the hour has flown by, and and I've discovered, uh, General, a way to keep it going. We just got to get the book. Uh, and so, <laughs> right. uh, in, in just the the closing seconds that we have, can you tell us really quickly? Because uh, I found out how, but can you tell us uh, how we can uh, get Dark Horse? Sure. The, the, it, you know, the, the book will be released in uh, November, probably mid-November, maybe a little sooner. Uh, but it's, it's available now for pre-order. You can go on Amazon or any of the, the uh, major uh, book outlets and just type in my name, Larry Spencer, Dark Horse. It'll pop right up and you can order it today. Very cool. And I got a full disclosure while you and Langle were talking. I did just that. I've got mine pre-ordered and it will be on my doorstep November 15th. That's what Amazon told me. So there you go. Right. Um, 
we started out going up the elevator. We have hit some high notes with you. So uh, in just a, 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 the, the few seconds that we have left, we're gonna come back down that elevator. Can you give us uh, the final word before we uh, wrap up for this segment? Sure, well, first of all, I just wanna thank both you and Lango for this opportunity. You know, this, this is a, a great opportunity for me, not just to talk about the book, but what's more important is the the lessons and the messages from the book that I hope will help and inspire others, because that, that's what the book was, what is about. It's not about me. It's about trying to help someone else along their journey. Uh, and, you know, my passion right now is, is to try to help others to reach their full potential. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I mean, our country is in a, a really tough spot right now. I mean, the, the, there's, the divisions are so hard. You know, everybody's at each other's throat uh, and we can't stay that way. And we need to we need to raise up a new generation of leaders um, who are able to lead this country back to unity and, and into the future. Uh, and I'm hoping that that all of us can help inspire those folks that are coming up, all these young folks to not make the mistakes that our generation has made that put us in the place we are in now. We need a generation of folks that that are coming along to think differently uh, and to, to not look, each, look at each other as, as blue and red or left and right or Democrat and Republican, but to look at each other as, as human beings, look at each other as Americans. We're all Americans. Uh, and we may have different views on how to solve problems, but we all are Americans. And if we could just keep that in mind, uh, I think we would be a lot better off. So I'm hoping that a lot of folks listening to this will really embrace this notion that we need to come together as a country uh, for our kids and our grandkids. That's a great way to wrap up this broadcast. Thank you so much, uh, General Larry O. Spencer. It has absolutely been an honor and uh, we celebrate you. The service to our country is appreciated and the service that you continue to render is absolutely making a difference. Thank you for being with us on this episode. Thank you so much, it was my pleasure. All right, we're going to hand things back off to Brandon Newby, who will see us out. Okay. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of High Tech Sunday. Career Communication Group's High Tech Sunday looks at professional development and technology through the lens of spiritual philosophies. In a time when digital information is more critical than ever, this weekly program is produced by and for CCG's community of alumni and professionals in science, technology, engineering, and math fields. The community runs from national thought leaders to aspiring students, and this weekly series aims to bring a concentrated discussion around technological advancements and achievements based on universal moral principles. The one-hour podcast will be streamed every Sunday. The podcast can be accessed through the Bay of Facebook page, Women of Color Facebook page, and CCG YouTube page, in addition to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Please join us next time. to get your nominations in for the Bay of STEM Awards. 
The honorees will be recognized at the Bay of STEM Conference held annually with a community over 10,000 strong that focuses on celebrating excellence by showcasing career opportunities and professionals in the STEM fields. The 36th annual conference will be held on February 17th through the 19th, 2022. Please visit www.ccgheroes.com for more details on our nomination process to make sure nominations packets have everything it needs for the upcoming Bay of STEM conference. All peer-reviewed nominations are due on August 31st, 2021. All Outstanding Achievement Awards are due on October 1st, 2021. Again, please visit our website at www.ccgheroes.com for more details on our nomination process.